This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast. Episode 263, A Thousand Cuts. Last time, the overwhelming Japanese forces had mauled the East Brigade and won the battle of the Wong Ning Chong Gap in the center of the island. Now, it seemed, it was simply a matter of accepting the British surrender, or, if needs must, push on to the west to finish the job. General Sakai would be content with either option. As for General Maltby, it's hard to know what he knew and when, but word must have been reaching him that some of the survivors of his lost counterattacks were being treated cruelly. For example, the men of the Middlesex and the Hong Kong artillery unit on the recently lost Brick Hill were all beheaded. This war over Hong Kong was becoming more than just an inevitable loss. It was de-evolving into a humanitarian crisis. It's difficult, even if all information is provided, to judge a commander on when he decides what is the right moment to admit defeat and surrender, thus increasing the chances that his remaining troops will survive. But what can be said about this moment is that General Maltby wasn't there yet. However, the next 48 hours would be the equivalent of him bashing his command against rocks, all the while losing men. Colonel H.B. Rose, the commanding officer of the Hong Kong Volunteer Defense Corps, was put in command of the West Brigade, replacing the recently killed John Lawson, and he spent much of December 20th preparing for the next counterattack. First, he would have the 2nd Royal Scots join up with B Company of the Winnipeg Grenadiers, and together they would drive east and, hopefully, begin the campaign that would win back the gap. Yet the Canadians would be coming all the way from the west coast. Still, they had the 20th to get into position. But nothing went right from the outset, and the phrase, for some unknown reason, could be used to sum up this latest attack. The Canadians were late in leaving their jump-off point. As for why, 
That's because the Scots started without them, but for some unknown reason. Still, it was a fact that could not be wished away, hence the Grenadiers, coming from the west coast, reached the western basin of Mount Nicholson, just west of the Gap, split into two groups, each one circled Nicholson on either side, and met up again, which is where the Scots were supposed to be, on the eastern slope, but now they were nowhere in sight. Nothing for it, the Canadians moved off, now above the Gap, and as it was before sunrise on December 21st, they hoped to use the darkness and the recent rainstorm as cover. It was probably those same rain clouds that allowed Colonel Doy to do what he did. The day before, the 20th, Doy's scouts reported back to him that though the Scots were on the eastern base of Mount Nicholson, there were no British troops at its heights. So, having the manpower available, Doy ordered a battalion of the 228th Regiment to break into three groups and make for the summit of Nicholson, figuring at least one of those groups had to make it. But by the evening of the 20th, all three had reached the heights. Mount Nicholson now belonged to the Japanese. So, in the morning of the 21st, as the Grenadiers reformed on the eastern slope, they were met by the Japanese above them, who saw them coming. The Canadians were soon enveloped, suffering massive casualties. All of its officers, seven NCOs, and 29 troops. The survivors were pushed back to the western side of Nicholson. The entire plan had unraveled, with nothing to show for it, but more killed and wounded. Colonel Doy wasted no time and planned to push west to take the next height, Mount Cameron, a half-mile due west of Nicholson. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity, and another with Merrill. And I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Meanwhile, Brigadier Cedric Wallace, the East Brigade commander, had planned a fresh assault on the Gap with his remaining forces. It was hoped that as his forces would be striking from Stanley Mound, near the Repulse Bay area, to the southeast of the Gap, this, in conjunction with the push coming from Colonel Rose's men from the west, would be enough to throw the enemy out of the Gap, thus resetting, more or less, the game board. So early in the morning of December 21st, his force of one company of Royal Rifles, another of the Hong Kong Volunteers, a machine gun section from another company, 
and the last two Bren carriers set out. But this endeavor fared no better than the Canadians at the base of Mount Nicholson. Right away, artillery fire rained down on this force from Red Hill to the east. Moreover, the heights in this area that had to be in friendly hands before they pushed on to the Gap were already occupied by Japanese forces. So instead of a stealth march to the northwest, this force under Major Macaulay of the Royal Rifles was in the thick of it before getting very far. As hours of fighting went by that day, the number of Japanese troops determined the day. By 5 p.m., Macaulay and all of his officers were wounded. Brigadier Wallace, disgruntled, ordered a pullback. His men had walked into a force equivalent of two enemy battalions with full artillery support and three tankettes. Though the British counterattacks were bleeding their manpower, General Sakai had decided to go on the offensive. Thus, another force was landed on the north coast, just to the east of Victoria City, itself to the northwest of the Gap, on the morning of the 21st. This force pushed its way west and used its artillery to take out an anti-aircraft gun on the city's eastern edge. Then, one by one, all the British-controlled guns were silenced. Despite this, Maltby wanted another assault, attempted from the Stanley area to the southeast of the Gap. Yet first the area had to be secured, as the Japanese kept sending probing forces from the east coast area. With that done, another force, comprising two platoons of Royal Rifles and two Hong Kong companies, both using two of their last trucks, set out. But when the commander of this latest force made it to the southern edge of the gap, he was able to see some of the enemy forces that he would have to engage. Their numbers staggered him. So on his own, he called off the attack. The gap remained in Japanese hands. As the sun rose on December 22nd, the Japanese felt confident enough, as they controlled Victoria Harbor, to bring over their heavy guns. Now, no positions along the western half of the northern coast were safe. But that was only the beginning of the Commonwealth troops' problems. Just above Repulse Bay to the south, the hotel by that name was under attack by two Japanese battalions. The numbers involved told of an eventual victory, but the question was, how many men would General Sakai lose? As for the Stanley Peninsula to the hotel's immediate right or east, the British had worked hard to throw together a defensive line, but due to a lack of numbers, this was not a continuous line, but rather three major groupings of troops. First, the most northern section was made up of Middlesex soldiers, Royal Rifles, and Hong Kong volunteers. The second group was centered around Stanley Village, along the coast of Repulse Bay, about halfway down the coast, again made up of Middlesex and Hong Kong troops. The third group, on Stanley Hill itself, was mostly manned by Hong Kong artillery units, though some of those men had been selected to fight as infantry, should the Japanese get that close. 
Overall, the British line was controlling the bottom third of the peninsula. But even this most furthest south defense was about to be tested. Stanley Mound, just off the coast of Repulse Bay, and about a fourth of a mile away to the northeast, Sugarloaf Hill, were both attacked. These heights were defended, and indeed made the British defensive line possible here. On Sugarloaf, the Japanese came, wave after wave, though the B Company of Royal Rivals and a platoon of Hong Kong troops held them back. But before the day was over, the defenders would find that there were still many more enemy troops than they had bullets. Thus, they were forced to make their way to the southern slope of Sugarloaf. At Stanley Mound, it was the same situation. Charge after charge hit the defenders, again a mix of Canadians and Hong Kong troops. But they held their ground, though their ammunition was beginning to run low. Though the Commonwealth troops in the Stanley area were holding their own, just barely, they were contained, unable to assist anywhere else, and the North and the West needed help. To the north of the Wong Ni Chong Gap near the coast, a company of Punjabis was holding out. Just below them, on Leighton Hill, Middlesex troops were doing the same. And to the south of them, but still above the gap, and to the immediate west, there were other Indian troops. Due west of the center of the gap were Scott and Grenadiers near Mount Cameron. To the south of Cameron was a force of two companies of more grenadiers, and south of all these, along the southwestern coast of Hong Kong, were British and Hong Kong troops. Like in the Stanley area, the British didn't have so much a defensive line, but rather a spread-out series of units. But just to the east of all of these was the Wong Ning Chong Gap, and this was held firm by the Japanese, and it would be from here that their latest attack would come, and their first target was Mount Cameron, due west of Mount Nicholson. Instead of attacking all these heights and losing many men in the process, bravery is not always more important than victory, it was decided by the Japanese to again take advantage of their numerical superiority and form a line just over a kilometer long that would start just south of Mount Cameron and continue on back in a southeasterly direction to Little Hong Kong, basically on the western side of the gap from the middle to its end at the south. The Commonwealth forces were not only fewer here, but were positioned more to the west. If all went well for the Japanese, the British-led troops to the north could be contained, like those in the Stanley area, while the enemy troops swung around from the south and could threaten them from the west. Further, as the headquarters of the West Brigade and that of the Grenadiers was just north of Mount Cameron, if the Japanese got in behind them from the south, the entire British command structure could be captured. Seeing this formation take shape in the south, the British tried to form their own line opposite of it, though smaller, thinner, and more to the west, which ended at Mount Kellick, just behind Aberdeen to the south. 
Not that the Japanese gave up on the idea of reducing the Commonwealth troops to the north. First, the attackers hit Company B of the Punjabis at the southern end of the northern defensive section. The Indians held the Japanese back once again, but by the time the aggressors pulled back, the Indians only had eight men left and two light machine guns. A second attack would surely win over. With the Pujabas so reduced in numbers, a gap opened up between them and the Scots, who were near Mount Cameron. This opening was about to be exploited, but a desperate flanking attack by another Punjabis unit caused the Japanese to pull back. Still, the gap was there. There simply weren't enough men to close it. Another Japanese unit then attacked just south of Mount Cameron, but were driven off by D Company of the Winnipeg Grenadiers. Another temporary solution. It became apparent to both sides that if the Japanese moved any further west, the various positions of defending Commonwealth troops would be cut off from each other and could fall one by one, basically the beginning of the end. Hence, a major was ordered to take about 100 men, a grand gesture considering the dwindling numbers, and push the Japanese back near the north coast. The 100 men broke into two groups. The right flank moved forward near the famous racetrack, but did not get far before being stopped. This was not necessarily a bad thing, as the left flank could use this distraction to their advantage. However, the left was hit with intense artillery fire, and as they did not possess entrenching tools, were forced to take a beating. As the left flank kept their heads down, the right flank was pressed hard, to the point that it broke and the Japanese poured through. Sensing a complete victory, some of the Japanese troops then turned north, around 10 p.m. that night of the 22nd, to try to get in behind the shelled left flank, well, though still alive. But the Canadians became aware of what was happening. Soon, both groups pulled back to Mount Golf, just over a half mile to the northwest of Mount Cameron. The most northern part of the defensive line was being ripped to shreds. On the morning of December 23rd, the recently brought over heavy guns began shelling the Rajputs, on the right flank near Leighton Hill, located in now very dangerous territory as it was east of the racetrack. Under the strain, the Rajputs fell back at 8 a.m. This left the Middlesex troops on their left flank exposed. Between the one-two punch of close-up fighting and artillery bombardment, the Middlesex troops soon pulled back as well. This opening allowed the Japanese to push on to the west along the north coast, so much so that they soon were in possession of the water supply of Victoria City. There, the civilians and troops had already been rationing what water they had. Now, it seemed, the careful control of the life-giving substance had been for naught. The Commonwealth troops could be as determined as they wanted, but everyone needed water. By December 24th, the northern and western half of the Stanley area to the south had been lost. The still-unconquered bottom half broke into two peninsulas, 
The left one didn't go down very far and ended at the town of Chung Hom Kok, whereas the right peninsula went much further south and ended at Port Stanley. Ironically, there is another peninsula, the most eastern part of Hong Kong, that holds the Shek O Country Park. But for whatever reason, there were no Commonwealth troops placed there, so the Japanese left it alone in these initial attacks. As the situation was desperate, respect for the command structure was starting to break down. Some units were accusing others of not pulling their weight, and the officers were soon in the fray, defending their men. Still, some semblance of order was brought, and the men were repositioned to best defend what territory they still held. A company of Hong Kong volunteers were put at the end of the left peninsula at Chung Hong Kok, at the top of the larger right peninsula at Stanley Fort, the Royal Rifles of Canada were stationed. This was the area's first line of defense. Just behind it, to the south, was the Stanley Police Station, and to the northeast of that, another Hong Kong company was placed. Just behind the police station was Bungalow No. 1, which contained pillboxes. Placed here were Middlesex troops with their medium machine guns. About a quarter of a mile south of the pillboxes was St. Stephen's College, and on its right was another group of pillboxes, number 27, manned by more Royal Rifles. Should the Japanese try an amphibious assault here, they would lose many men coming ashore. The defenders could only hope for this. So again, the first line of defense was at the peninsula's beginning near the police station. Its second line was just in front of the college. As land was limited on Hong Kong, just below the college was Stanley Prison, and next to it was a preparatory school. Things being what they were, the prisoners were let out and given guns, then incorporated into the Hong Kong Volunteer Defense Corps. One prisoner in particular, Krub Chattery, formerly of the Middlesex troops, who had been serving a two-year sentence, was put in charge of his inmates. They all knew that if the Japanese were victorious, they would not care who was shooting back at them, be it a British prisoner or Commonwealth soldier. 